Okay, so today's session is, as I said, looking at Luke 6, uh, 17 to 49, and we're looking at the idea of character witnesses. And I'm going to take you back to the year 70 BC in Sicily, an island in the Mediterranean. And in this kind of event, we have two main players. We have Gaius Ferres, who was a Roman magistrate in Sicily, and he was notorious for his misgovernment and extortion of the local farmers, and he was known for plundering temples. And just all in all, he wasn't really liked too much by the people of Sicily. And then the second person I want to introduce is Marcus Tullius Cicero, or just Cicero. And he served as a trainee administrator in Sicily, and he demonstrated honesty and integrity, and he was, he was liked by everyone in Sicily. And everyone there, they obviously didn't like Veras, and they tasked Cicero with tackling Veras. So I just wanted to get some thoughts. How would you, if you were Cicero in 70 BC, how would you go about legally and lawfully bringing Veras to justice? What kind of ways could we do that? Like you could report him to the police, or like nowadays you'd report him to the police. I don't know what their version was back then. Yeah, so like you'd report him to the police, then I guess they'd probably collect some evidence, go around, you know, asking people um, for like accounts, maybe written accounts of stuff that he's done. And that's, that's pretty much what Cicero did. He went around, he traveled all over Sicily and he collected character witnesses. So people who could testify about Veres, about his character, you know, about what he'd done and basically how he could be brought to justice. And this actually provided suitable evidence to convict Veres even though he employed the most expensive lawyer and best group for people to defend him, um, he was still convicted because of these character witnesses. And this clearly highlights the essentiality of these types of witnesses and how it still actually it does apply to us today. It can quite clearly link to another trial in the first century AD, a trial of the Christian faith, Paul's trial. And Luke is trying to prove to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, um, as seen at the start, that basically Christianity is the true form of Judaism. So we've got Paul, he's in chains, he's in prison around 60-62 AD, and he travels um, all over the Mediterranean, basically just going through a couple of different judges and courtrooms, just in order to try and just like work out what's going on basically and this final one is in Rome being done by Caesar's judges and it's thought that Theophilus was this judge. Luke knows that everything is resting on this trial and it all comes down to character and what Luke is trying to do through this gospel is contrast the character of the Christian faith against the world. He wants to show Theophilus the differences between the rabbis and religious leaders who are self-serving and who focused on the Mosaic law to see the great gift that is Jesus. And basically just to show that Christians are people who say yes to Jesus and to his way and say no to the low morality of Rome. And there's, there's this kind of contrast being created here. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first section of this passage uh, called Blessings and Woes from verse 17 to 26. Um, if anyone would like to read, just say. Otherwise, I'm happy to read if no one is too keen. I can do it if you want. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Thank you, Anna. So it's Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 26. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, 
from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Thank you, Hannah. Yes, so this passage in Luke, it sounds very similar to the Beatitudes seen in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. But it also sounds slightly different. And the reason for this is that Jesus actually told this same message with a slightly different delivery on two occasions. He told it in two different places. We can see in Matthew's gospel that Matthew recounts the Sermon on the Mount, as it says that Jesus was teaching on a mountainside. Whereas in Luke's gospel, we can see that it's the Sermon on the Plain, as Luke 6.17, it says that Jesus went down and stood on a level place. And the change from Matthew's eight blessings, Luke puts it into four blessings and four woes. And this is really where we can see the entry of Jesus's upside down kingdom. You know, it says in Romans that we're called to not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And to do this, we have to kind of go against the grain of society, even when that's hard, even when it feels unnatural. So looking more into these four blessings and four woes, they actually they pair up to four sets of two. So obviously you've got poor and rich, hungry and satisfied weeping and laughing and being hated and being popular but it can actually be broken down even further because as each of those can be taken into three different ways you have the physical the personal and the spiritual so if we look at the first one jesus is talking about blessed are you who are poor but woe to you who are rich and there's this idea that it's not actually all about finances on face value it can seem like okay if i am poor then we're blessed if we're not poor then we're not but if you actually go back to the original greek the word used is toptros in 620 and this shows that it's not about finances it's the idea of being reduced to beggary this idea of dependence total and utter dependence on god that kind of comes with that because being poor you kind of have that idea of being poor maybe spiritually you have the idea that you need to depend on god you have like you know that ultimately we are all sinners and that we can do nothing other than what god can do through us and yeah and there's really just this idea that blessed are those who know that they need god that they cannot do it alone now looking on to the second one it's talking about those who are hungry are blessed and those who are satisfied are cursed and this again it comes back to the concept of being totally reliant on god it says in Matthew, I think, that we are to come to God like little children to humbly receive, um, you know, his kingdom, the great gift that he has given to us through Christ. And 
there's also this idea that though we might be hungry now, you see in Romans 8, 18, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's this idea that Jesus says that things will be hard, things will not be easy, but we have this hope, we have this eternal assurance that in the future we have eternal life with Jesus. And this can also be taken a step further to a personal and spiritual level that you know we can be hungry for god in our lives you have that you know idea that if we're wanting god we're seeking him and through that you know we are blessed but it can also be taken yet again one step further there's this idea that we can be hungry for change and justice to stand up for those who are oppressed um you know to love our enemies as seen in the next part of this passage and basically it's just to have that motivation and drive to see God at work in us and see God's kingdom come through us. The third one that Jesus talks about is the idea of weeping. And there's this concept that if, you know, weeping over sin and weakness, you're blessed. But if you, you know, laugh at God's word, you're cursed. And again, this can be split into three ways. Like it can be, you can be weeping because of physical or emotional turmoil, something that's happened. But you can also be weeping over, you know, the sin of the world. We saw that a couple of times that Jesus, you know, he was weeping over the, the sin of the world when he was crucified. He was the father, forgive them. But also it can be over our own personal sin. You know, there's this idea that we ultimately we're not good enough for God. But because of Jesus, because Jesus died for us on the cross, we are redeemed by his blood and we can enter into a relationship with him um, because of that. And then finally, there's this idea of popularity. If you're hated for your faith, then you're blessed. Um, if you enjoy the world's approval, then you're not. But I think this, again, it all comes back to mindset. Like there's nothing wrong with, you know, having friends. That's completely okay. There's nothing wrong with being popular, but it's about how you deal with that. It's the same for rich and poor. This passage isn't saying that you can't be rich. It's not saying that if you're rich, you can never have access to God. It's the mindset that comes with that. There's often the concept that, you know, if you're popular, if you're well off, then you kind of tend to think, oh, look at all this great stuff that I have achieved. But Jesus is clearly saying here, like, no, you need to sort your mindset out. You need to focus your hearts and minds on God. And just remember that all of this is possible, not because of anything we have ever done or could ever do but because of jesus because of his blood which was you know spilled out for us on the cross if we take this one step further there's an idea of the human partnership with the holy spirit it flips the world order it it subverts everything that we think we know you know you've got if if we recognize how much we need god then we we are blessed we are the lucky ones and it's those who succeed in the eyes of this fallen world that should really be pitied above all. And that's that's what Jesus is kind of getting at through this passage, I think. But it's also essential that we don't read too much into the idea of being blessed, like to not over spiritualize it. Because, again, if you go back to the original translation, the Greek word is makarios, which does it literally just means happy or lucky. So this idea that yeah, like things will be hard. It's, nothing's going to be easy, but we are happy and we are lucky. We have this utter peace because of, because of Jesus and because of the hope and trust that we have in him. 
And looking at the concept of blessings and hardships, if we return back to the first century Jewish mindset, there was this concept that you know if things are going your way, if you are being blessed, then it's because you've been good. It's because you've done something to gain that. And if if hard times have come, then it's because you've been bad. But we can clearly see that Jesus is flipping this around. He's just completely subverting this. Jesus is saying that hard times, they're not a lack of God's favor. They're not because of anything we've done, but they are just part of life. And it's really how we how we cope with those that can actually often show God's um, show God's love to the people around us. This idea, it comes from the stem of the Greek word shalom, this deep seated peace with God. It's this idea that uh, it says in Romans that, you know, when our spirit aligns with the Holy Spirit and we, you know, we testify for that, everything will just click really. And we'll have this yeah deep rooted peace. And that, you know, even through the storm, we can remain firmly anchored um, in God and in his promises. The last part of this passage um, talks about false prophets. And I just wanted to hone in on that um, quickly. And basically false prophets, um, you know, Paul warns about them. And there's this idea of teaching only the good bits of the Bible. You know, you might see, you know, Jesus loves you. You're forgiven. That's it. Like, and then they'll, they'll leave out the rest. Um, but it's essential that we actually remember that we stand up for what is right and that we preach the whole gospel, we have to preach that, yes, ultimately, we are sinners, we are flawed, we need Jesus, because we can't do this alone. And just looking again at this um, idea of popularity, it's almost saying that, you know, when people dislike us for living out our faith, for preaching the gospel, there's this idea that if we're hated for that, like, that's okay, because ultimately, the gospel, it, it needs to be like Marmite, because it splits people one of two ways. You can't sit on the fence. You can't think, ah, oh, it's all right. It's either going to stir something within you and cause you to really, you know, live for God and turn to him, or it's gonna, it's gonna push you the other way. And there's this idea, yeah, there's this idea that if we preach the gospel message as, uh, as it is undiluted, complete biblical truth, then there will be, there will be that division. It says that, but we mustn't be disheartened by that. Um, because it means that we've got the message across and that is what we're called to do so now looking at the next section of the passage i'm talking about love for enemies i'm not gonna read through each of these subsequent ones but uh, you can you know follow through and in this in this passage again it seems kind of contrasting it seems different to what the world tells us that we should do but here jesus is clearly saying that we must reflect his love to others in first century BC, there was a concept among Roman philosophers that you would avoid doing evil things to others, uh, otherwise the same would come back to you. And there's this idea that, you know, you know, say you stole someone's horse, then something of yours may be stolen later on. But Jesus actually takes this much further. He takes the same principle, but states it positively. He says, do to others as you would have them do to you. You know, and later on, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. As this idea of relentless love, even in the face of adversity, even in the face of hardships, that we are called to love without limits. And we can do that through God's love, which is poured out into us. And that is never ending. And this passage really, it sums up the entire Jewish moral law. It says in Matthew seven twelve, this sums up the law and the prophets. But going back to 
the concept from earlier, how we must do to others as we would have them do to us. But it's important to remember, you know, don't just avoid doing evil, but be eager to do good. There's this kind of concept that, you know, we have to be, yes, yeah, seeking to um, do good in the world. I don't know about you, but I find it, you know, it's easy to um, to love and bless and pray for your friends, for your family, for people who are kind to you. But it is much more challenging to people who wrong you, to people who hurt you. But actually, Jesus calls us to love, bless and pray for our enemies as well. And he actually, you know, he clearly says here that we can't have an expectation that we'll get something good back. We can't have that expectation that, you know, if we if we're really nice to someone who's wronged us, then, you know, they'll be nice to us back. Um, like their response may not change. It's not a payback kind of idea, you know, as seen in verse 35. Um, Love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. You know, there's this concept that we are to shower love and grace onto all that we meet um, as God showers grace on us ungrateful and rebellious humans every single day. However, it is also important that um, these verses do not teach us to be passive in the face of evil, but to kind of sacrifice our rights for others to just yet yeah, to serve, not to be served. And yeah, just basically just love, relentlessly care for all, even when it's hard, even when it seems counterintuitive to do so. Now, looking at the uh, next one, talking about judging others, again, we see this idea of an upside down kingdom, how it goes completely against the grain of what we are taught by society. But yeah, here we can see through Jesus' teaching that we are not called to judge one another. Ultimately, God is our judge and we cannot take that place. And if we do, then that's bad. Human discernment is good. There's nothing wrong with that. We can work out, um, we can use our common sense. You know, we're told like, what's right and wrong, but we cannot usurp God's role as judge. And Jesus says here quite clearly that we will be judged according to the way that we judge others. And there's this idea that, you know, we have two options, I guess. Um, you know, we can forgive and excuse others for their wrongs that they do to us. And God will, he will forgive and excuse us. But if we judge and condemn others, then we ourselves will be judged and condemned. There's this idea that, as it says in the passage, that how, how can we tell someone to take this tiny bit of sawdust out of their own eye when we have a whole plank in ours? We have to make sure that, you know, we are right. We cannot be judging others for how they act or how they think. And I think also it's really essential to remember that ultimately sin is sin. There's no levels or degrees uh, in God's eyes. Like sin is sin. And I guess there's often the misconception that, you know, uh, you know, I haven't murdered anyone. Like, you know, I'm doing I'm doing all right. But it's essential to remember that. Yeah, all sin is sin and it is abhorrent to God. There are no levels or degrees. But, you know, we are saved not because we earned it. We do not deserve it in any way. It's a gift for us. And quite an interesting image that um, that I found when I was doing a bit of reading for this is if you point your finger at someone. So if you just point your finger at your screen right now, I want you to look at what your fingers are doing. Like, where are they pointing? One going forward and three going back. So there's, it's just it's just an image just to show you, you know, like, we mustn't judge others because ultimately we are not worthy to judge others because we are sinners and we need God as much as anyone does. And... 
you know, the best thing about that is that God has freely given us a gift which allows us to enter into a deep and personal and intimate relationship with him, the creator of the universe. And this gift is Jesus, the best gift ever. He is perfect and holy and died in our place. He took the punishment for our sins. He, he died where we should have. And we can see here in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works. And yeah, there's just this idea really that there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. There is no other way which we can be saved, which we can be redeemed other than through Christ. Um, and yeah, that is given freely. All we have to do is just repent, believe, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit as seen in Acts 2.38. Now, looking at these last two parables, a tree and its fruit and the wise and foolish builders. Now, parables can sometimes be you know, a bit confusing. You sometimes think, OK, like, what is you know, going on here? And these two parables demand an active response from the listener. The first one is talking about trees. And, you know, there's this idea that each tree is recognized by its own fruit, verse 44. Um, and there's this concept that, you know, we can't just tell a tree by claiming what it is like. We have to see uh, kind of by what fruit it produces. And there's also from this, there's this idea that we have to fix our eyes and ears onto God's word and we will produce fruit um, so that, you know, we're not, we're not corrupted by sinful things. From our heart comes everything and we've got to make sure that we're filling our lives with the right stuff you can see in proverbs 4:23, above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it and yeah there's just this idea that whatever our you know true intentions are whatever our true motives are it is essential to just keep our eyes focused on god keep our eyes focused on jesus and just the immense grace and love that has been poured out to us now looking at the wise and foolish builders. This is quite an interesting parable. You know, it's quite well known. Wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. There's a song about it, but I'll spare you the pain of having to listen to me sing. Yes, there's just really this idea that the true mark of a Christian is whether we take God's word to heart and do what it says. We're called to respond to this gift that has been given to us through Jesus. Um, that is Jesus through his life, death and resurrection. We are called to respond. And tough, stormy times will come. Jesus tells us that. The Bible tells us that. And it will reveal if we are firmly rooted in God. Um, you know, there's this idea that ultimately there will be a final judgment. But we can be confident in the fact that the hard work has been done. Jesus came to earth. God became human. He lived among us. Holy God, holy human. And he lived a perfect life, free from sin, and died an innocent man in our place. He died a brutal death so that we might enter into a relationship with God. You know, this really just highlights God's immense love for us. We can see in, um, you know, the passage here about loving your enemies, love those who wrong you. You know, as I said earlier, we are all sinners. Yet while we were sinners, God, in his immense grace, gave us Jesus. He sent his only son to die for us so that we could enter into relationship with him so he took the punishment that we deserved and that's pretty amazing and looking at the back to the builders the wise and foolish builders building a fake faith building a phony faith it's quick and impressive it can seem like you know everything's everything's going well 
But here Jesus is warning us not to do that and that we should instead dig deep foundations into God's word. And it's, yeah, it's really just a, a warning that we must really just remain rooted in God, that we can't do this out of our own strength, but we can do all things through Christ. I guess really just to wrap this up, when reading this, it can seem really, really hard. It can seem impossible just you know to deal with these things but it's essential to remember that these commands are not a set of unattainable ideals and the reason they are not unattainable is because we don't have to do this by our own strength we have the holy spirit and we can do this through him god can create in us this character he can work in our hearts if we say yes to the holy spirit i mean you can see in matthew 19 26 with man this is impossible but with god all things are possible and you know if we follow jesus as our example we can see in verse 40 uh it says that the student is not above the teacher but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher if we enter into a relationship with god if we devote time to him if we spend time with him and yeah just follow follow him in all aspects of our life and really live for him then god will do amazing things through us and yeah i guess really just to wrap up there's this idea that salvation comes from god it's a great and wonderful gift which he is offering to you today and there's nothing that can ever take that away because god loves you god loves me god loves everyone and he is calling you to respond and to enter into that loving relationship that has been bought by the blood of his son jesus christ yeah that's all for me this evening thank you very much